Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, March 9th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Paul Ryan, in describing the American Health Care Act, his savior of the decrepit, eroding death rattle that is Obamacare, emphasized the deliverance that his bill represents. Obamacare is collapsing. Obamacare isn't staying. If we did nothing, the law would collapse and leave everybody without affordable health care. We are doing an mer- act of mercy by repealing this law and replacing it with patient-centered health care reforms. Ah, so Obamacare didn't have death panels, but the Ryan bill is a death panel. It euthanizes a dying patient. And what better symbolizes the care, sensitivity, and patient-centered empathy than the House Committee on Ways and Means and Hospice Care? Oh, wait, no, just Ways and Means. There... In a session that went until 4.30 this a.m., so a dying patient could be quickly shuffled out the door, sorry, tenderly ushered into the whisper of the great beyond, there was Representative Jason Smith of Missouri. He talked about an aspect of the ACA, a tax on tanning salons. I wanted to see who is the, who predominantly is taxed with this tanning tax. Is it men Is it women? Today's International Women Day. It's interesting that no one is bringing that up. And I just would like for people to look at the jobs from the tax, but also whoever decided to impose this tax seven years ago, before I was here, I'd be quite curious of, of why did they just randomly pick this tax to have it paid for on the backs of so many females? And not just the backs, the arms, the legs, the faces, except the eyelids where you should really wear those little goggles, if not cucumbers. Oh, so soothing. With a gentleman yield. And so I'm not done yet, sir. Okay. No, no, no. He won't yield because he doesn't want to be interrupted by the simple answer, which is... It turns out that tanning salons cause cancer, and cancer costs Americans a lot more money down the road than preventing the cancer in the first place by making tanning salons somewhat less attractive. Anyway, that's why. By the way, that solution actually worked. But don't yield when you're on fire with irrefutable arguments. You know, there's a lot of taxes out there, but you could tax a lot of different items if you want to stop behavior. You know, I love ice cream. Ice cream is probably not the most healthy thing to eat. Fact check, true. Why is there not a tax on that? Because there is a tax on that. Representative Smith, you've been to a Dairy Queen. I just know it. Actually, the tax on ice cream is very interesting. Ice cream in a carton, it's dairy, it's untaxed. Ice cream from an ice cream guy, 
taxed. In Wisconsin, there's a big debate over ice cream cake. Seriously, when the cake contains actual cake layers, it's a non-taxable baked good, but that's only if the amount of cake in the ice cream cake exceeds the amount of ice cream. There are examples in a bill, and example nine is a cake with two cake layers and one ice cream layer, tax exempt. The next example is a cake with one cake layer, two ice cream layers, it's taxable, not enough cake. Anyway, we interrupted Rep Smith, who is just getting started down his rocky road. You know what? If you look at the number one cause of skin cancer, it's not tanning beds. Do a Google search. It's the sun. You know, another leading cause of death is train wrecks. So why isn't there a tax on your testimony before this committee? You know, I love ice cream. Oh, I'm sorry. I get it now. Just, you know what? Just go eat your fudge ripple. The adults have actual policies to debate. On the show today, well, I'm not even going to spiel. Oh, no, because that is the norm. And we're going to change that norm quickly. So Maria Konnikova is spieling today on how norms can change quickly. But first, in a normal world, the story of Donald Trump's hotel in Azerbaijan would be a burgeoning scandal that most Americans would be aware of and appalled by. Though in a normal world, Donald Trump wouldn't be president, just a builder with shady business dealings in the ethical backwater that is Azerbaijan. So it's a paradox. And Adam Davidson is here to set us straight. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Baku, capital of Azerbaijan. I've never been there, but I've heard that it's actually not that nice. One big building that you have just got to see is the Baku 21st century. Up until a little while ago, that was the Trump Tower Baku. It's hard to get to, never actually opened, but big and glitzy. And possibly the nexus of corruption and terrorism, yes, terrorism, there's a connection that links the Trumps to the Iranian National Guard via a very shady Azerbaijani family. Adam Davidson went to Baku, chronicled it, talked to a lot of lawyers. For The New Yorker, he joins me now. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. I talked to people who weren't lawyers as well. It seemed like mostly lawyers, though. It was a lot of lawyers. I think you also spoke to a lot of people who need lawyers at this point. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> so take us through it. And there are I, I, let's start with the family in Azerbaijan. It is the transportation minister and kind of let's spread it out and trace it out from there. Yes, I was looking to go deep into one of Donald Trump's sketchy overseas deals. And there's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of them that I find like, wow, yeah, that, there's some sketchy people. But the Baku deal seemed... <laughs> The the Philippi and the Philippines was too hot this time of year or what? Philippines was hot. I, no, well, I spent a week looking into Indonesia yeah. and I think Georgia, there's a lot there. But, Uruguay. Yeah. Yeah, we could go on. We could go on. Brazil, certainly. <laughs> mm. Trump, do uh, Donald, well, the Trump organization partnered with the son and brother of Zia Mamadov. And Zia Mamadov was until a couple weeks ago, the transportation minister of Azerbaijan. And that is a really big job to have because Azerbaijan was one of the poorest, most desolate corners of the Soviet Union, got independence as a miserably poor place. But then they got Caspian 
offshore oil, and suddenly hundreds of billions of dollars start flowing into the country. And one of the decisions made was, hey, let's spend as much of these billions as possible on building roads. Okay. And the transportation minister- That's actually a fine decision politically. However- However, um, when Zia Mamadov was in charge of building these roads, Azerbaijan's roads were the most expensive to build in the world, Mm -hmm. something like $18 million per kilometer when typical rates are- Two million, three million, five yeah. million dollars per kilometer. So the assumption, the belief is most of that money was uh, went into Ziamamadov's, or much of that money went into Ziamamadov's pocket. And this was widely known that there were three companies. Don't have to go into all the details, but one was controlled by Ziamamadov's son. One was controlled by his brother Elton, who is was at the time a sitting member of parliament, and the third was controlled by his former driver. And it's a fairly open secret that these three companies are really just fronts for Ziyama Madoff, deeply corrupt, considered one of the most corrupt people in one of the most corrupt countries in the world. One of these countries where I've been to countries like this, Haiti has a bit of this, Iraq certainly has this, where no one's even trying to pretend they're not corrupt. Mm -hmm. It's not even a thing. It's just, yeah, we're corrupt. I'm the transportation minister. Look at the insane villa I live in. You would talk to a lot of, uh, say, Western contractors and you'd ask about corruption and answers range from I never saw it to, yeah, I assume. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So how did the Trumps come into this? So one thing I never figured out is how they actually met the Mamadovs. And that was a big frustration of mine. I really still want to know that. In fact, if anyone knows that, please let me know. They had certainly done business around the region. They, They had a big deal in Georgia with the president of Georgia. And they, you know, obviously the Russia connection, the guy who brought Donald Trump to Russia for the uh, Miss Universe pageant in Moscow was an Azerbaijani billionaire. And there's some other links that seem possible. I mean, it's certainly at the time, we're talking 2010, 11, 12, Donald Trump and the Trump organization were spending a lot of time with People close to oligarchs in yeah. the former Soviet Union. But this building existed, right? It was built in 2008 and Trump comes on in 2012 to take the building from, we're going to talk about the building in a second, but to take the building from this huge tower to a hotel and perhaps a luxury residence. Yeah, it was originally went up, the shell went up as a as a residence by an Azerbaijani architect, um, but it was not a very well-built building, not a very attractive building. And when the Trump organization joined, they said, you got to fire your contractor. Now, the contractor was Anar Mamadov, the son of the transportation minister, which actually has legal significance because when you work with a relative of a government official, you're expected to make sure that you're not working with that person because they're the relative of a government official, but because they're really good at their job. Mm -hmm. So when you fire them as your first act, that is a sign that you don't have you a don't lot of think he's good at you don't have job. a lot of confidence yeah. Yeah. but um so ivanka trump oversaw the project um were intimately involved in every aspect of the building i mean deciding how many elevators it should have how the back of the house should operate how much room should be given over to banquet halls versus mm-hmm. you know restaurants versus she picked rooms. the materials of the ceiling there's a, exactly there's an instagram post from her of 2014 wearing a hard hat Inside the hotel or next to it? Yeah, no, inside. Yeah, inside. inside. And and the structure of Trump's deal, so we've always heard that, oh, he just slaps his name, he just licenses his name and slaps his name on something. And this, well, you tell me, this seemed to be his lawyer's defense. A, even if true, might not be a good defense, defense but you kind of prove it's not true. 
the defense they have. So so there's this law called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It comes out of um, 1977. It's actually out of Watergate. It's an interesting story in and of itself that one of the things that was learned in Watergate is that private corporations were funneling millions of dollars to the committee to reelect the president secretly. And the SEC went on this journey, like, how do companies hide millions of dollars from their investors, from their auditors? And they did this investigation and found out that companies were bribing foreign officials like crazy. And um, lots and lots of American companies were doing it. And they started putting together charges and realized, oh, it's not actually a crime in America to bribe a foreign official. So they wrote the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which passed in 1977, went into effect in 1978. And since then, no American company uh, can legally directly bribe a foreign government official in return for something of benefit or even be part of a scheme, even if they don't know that they're part of a scheme. So uh, in the story, I talk about a man named Rick Burke who went to jail because he was part of an investment in Azerbaijan. And the judges said, effectively, you were doing an investment in Azerbaijan. You should have known corruption was a possibility. So, So though the defense that the lawyer you spoke to said was, oh, it's essentially just branding. Yeah, but it wasn't just brand. Right. So the, so their defense is we were merely a licensor and we just gave our brand. Mm-hmm. That might be a defense. I don't think that's inherently a defense. But as a general rule, the more involved in a project you are, the more responsibility you take on for the project. I think it's intuitive. Um, but what I was able to show is that the Trump organization was deeply involved in every aspect of this deal. In fact, the... Azerbaijani contractor's lawyer told me basically we someone would fly out from New York from the Trump organization to Baku, approve a bunch of work orders. We do that work and then wait for someone else to fly back from New York to approve the next round of work orders. There was nothing done from the smallest, smallest detail that wasn't approved by the Trump organization. So this isn't simply, you know, McDonald's saying, yes, you can open a McDonald's. Here's our brand book. Make sure to use this color red and the M should be this shape. This was... Ivanka on site and other Trump officials and a stream and a parade of Trump officials and even the Azerbaijanis came to Trump Tower, exactly. the family. And and one of their, maybe uh, if you want to bend over backwards and say, well, maybe the work working through this transportation minister's family, maybe that was legit. You pretty much demonstrate there's no way they could claim that it was legit. Yes. I mean, th- so this story is obviously upsetting because- Donald Trump is our president. But even if it's not the president, it I still don't understand how it was possible. It was publicly known that they were doing business with one of the most corrupt families and one of the most corrupt parts of the world. Yep. This is a toxic family. And just to give you an idea of how seriously others took the law, this wasn't like an emoluments clause situation where it's never been tested. You document that everyone knows when you go into Azerbaijan, you've got to do your due diligence. You probably talk to, I don't know, how many other companies that did. Exactly. Although, frustratingly, none of the other companies were willing to be named because they, as one guy told me, they were terrified of a Trump tweet. Right, right. So they, I had, I mean, it was sort of crazy, like this chilling effect of Trump. And then 
there was even an American who literally was arrested. You know, he appealed it and he's in jail or served jail time for dealing with the corrupt Azerbaijanis. This was known. This is how you do it unless you're Donald Trump and hit the Trump yeah. organization that didn't do it like this. And there's all these businesses set up. I mean, you know, Deloitte and Ernst and & Young and PricewaterhouseCooper, yeah. as well as a bunch of international law firms, all have offices in Baku. It's not hard. You just yeah. make a phone call. You say, hey, I need some due diligence run on this family in Azerbaijan. It happens constantly. It happens in every corrupt or every questionable risky country, although few countries are quite as risky as Azerbaijan. You know, some people do due diligence when they're doing a deal in Norway, but you certainly do it in Azerbaijan. It's so, would, a, so would the reason not to do it be because you're afraid that the answer is you can't go through with the deal? Yeah, and I don't know that they didn't do it. They said we did due diligence and it didn't raise any red flags. And that is literally impossible. I mean, that just that you're doing business in Azerbaijan in and of itself is a red flag. That you're doing business with the family of a government minister is a red flag. So I don't know if they didn't do it, yeah. if there's some company out there that just does kind of whitewash due diligence. Gives so you, you the answer you want. Yeah, yeah. Or if they found out that it was super risky and decided to go ahead for whatever reason. I have no idea what, what, what they actually They don't have did. to file that publicly anywhere. No. only. I mean, if they're – the whole point of due diligence is, first of all, not to get into bed with corrupt, sketchy people, but – and then to be able to have a defense if you're ever sued or prosecuted. In what might normally be the biggest scandal associated, attached to a candidate or a politician, because it's Trump, it's, you know, scandal number 270-something. But to your knowledge, has he ever addressed anything about Azerbaijan or illegality in the press or in anything other than the broadest possible terms? I've never seen him address it. His organization has, you know, just... These perfunctory, it was a licensing deal. We didn't, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. We when you talk to his lawyer now, was it perfunctory? Was he trying to run interference on you? I, I got to say, he was very available. I spent hours and hours on the phone with him. and I got, I got to, the sense that he thought maybe he had a good argument. Yeah, I talked to him today and he said, read your piece. I still think I'm right. Um, I like him. I like Trump's lawyer. I really do. Um the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is such a part of American business that there's this entire community of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FCPA lawyers. I'm going to be on the FCPA compliance podcast this week. Whoa. I'm going to do a Q&A with the FCPA blog this week. Uh -huh. There is. I went to the FCPA conference. It's like a whole world, hundreds yeah. and hundreds of people who make their living – probably maybe thousands of people who make their doing due diligence, checking due diligence, doing defending cases, prosecuting cases. I talked to so many people. Everyone agreed this would be a tough case to prosecute. Everyone but one, there's this one kind of cranky guy, everyone else, dozens of people thought, no, clearly this could be a violation of the law. They weren't, you know, they're lawyers. They weren't willing to say, I know for sure. They were going on what I was telling them. But Nobody but one person agreed with the Trump Organization lawyer that no way we broke the law because we were just licensors, we received money, we didn't pay money. That is an opinion that the Trump Organization holds but but is not widely shared. I tried to listen to that podcast once, but the, the file was corrupt. But um, bum I think that if this were not about the president, 
would the U.S. government pursue it? I think if there was a big article in The New Yorker, they probably would pursue it. Yeah. But, but it's not like there's automatic investigation out there that would have picked it up necessarily. Can they still pursue it now? Yeah. The people who pursue it independent enough from the executive? We'll see. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is just, uh, if this is depressing, another example of, oh my God, where have we gone? There is one non-depressing part of it, which is what America is and how seriously they take this. I mean, you talk to some Canadian guys and some English guys and, of course, all the Azerbaijani guys. It would seem that, other than the specifics of this and who's the president now, America is a leading light in terms of anti-corruption and really taking it seriously, much more so than even, you know, the U.K., more than a leading yeah. light, the leading light. Yeah. I mean, the the fight against global corruption is an American fight. And yeah. uh, the sort of modern father of FCPA enforcement is this fairly modest lawyer named Peter Clark, who spent 20 years traveling to Europe, trying to convince people over there, government officials, to join in the anti-corruption fight. And it took a long time. I mean, I think there was a solid 10, 15 years where he was basically just laughed at, like, how else are we going to do business? And and the U.S. has led the effort to make it, certainly we haven't eliminated corruption by any stretch of the imagination, but we have eliminated the view, I think, among most businesses, not only in the U.S., but in Europe, that corruption is a normal and acceptable part of business that it's you know like paying taxes or something and does the ongoing presence of this uh trump uh project unprosecuted set back that american-led effort this is a moment where our institutions are being tested to their core and i think it's possible to imagine a future where this only strengthens them where this forces a series of national conversations or policy conversations where we sort of collectively decide hey we should be a leading light against corruption at the same time i think our institutions really are being tested and and if we are showing the entire world and the entire country that one option for getting rich is flouting the law and then using the wealth you generate by flouting the law to become powerful enough to shape the law, you know, that's the kind of stuff that happens, you know, in countries like Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. <laughs> yeah. Adam Davidson is a staff writer for The New Yorker. And his latest article is Donald Trump's worst deal. That's saying something. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. It is always a pleasure. And now the spiel. I'm Maria Konnikova, spieling for you again today. So last time I was on, we talked about how Donald Trump affects our brains. And today I want to talk about Trump again, but this time let's focus on a different part of us, how he affects our hearts. So Donald Trump was elected on a huge wave of what he termed anti-political correctness. 
So everybody wants to be politically correct, and that's part of the problem that we have with our country. Have people been too politically correct with Muslims in America? I think so. I think so. And with maybe other things, too, but I think certainly so. To be clear, this isn't actually anti-political correctness. Instead, what he's been doing is legitimizing things like hate speech and using stereotypes to refer to different groups of people. So what happens when that transition takes place, when the tone from the top really shifts from someone like Barack Obama to someone like Donald Trump? Already, we've seen bomb threats. We've seen anti-Semitic actions. We've seen anti-Muslim actions. Last year, the number of hate groups targeting Muslims almost tripled, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. So since the election, we've seen a very direct effect of this type of rhetoric on actual behavior of people in the country. Patrons told Kansas police Wednesday night a man had yelled, get out of my country at two customers before opening fire and fleeing the scene. So first, let's take a step back and think a little bit about kind of how stereotypes form in our minds. What we know from psychology is that basically every single person is biased. When we grow up, we absorb the stereotypes of our society, how people look at different groups, and this happens on a subconscious basis. So we really have all of these beliefs within us But that doesn't mean that we are actually all biased people who act in biased ways. There's a big difference between the beliefs that you've absorbed on a subconscious level and the beliefs that you actually act on. So Susan Fisk, who's a psychologist at Princeton University, back in the 1990s, she developed something called the continuum model of impression formation. And what it means is that we all have certain stereotypes within us, but we can be motivated to act on them or not, depending on the circumstances. So for instance, um, there was a recent study that was done on doctors, and doctors were tested on their level of implicit bias. And then people wanted to see, are more biased doctors going to be providing inferior care? And it turns out the answer is absolutely not. In fact, some of the doctors with the highest level of implicit bias explicitly ended up being the most fair-minded and provided the most accurate, in-depth treatment of anyone. It didn't matter, you know, if they were male, female, white, black, they were just really good doctors. So what this means is you can actually implicitly be biased and explicitly not act on those biases and instead act in a really good professional way. So one does not translate into the other. It's a question of motivation. But when that motivation changes, then all of a sudden, the beliefs that were latent might become more conscious. And so what affects motivation? You know, when are we motivated to act in one way versus another way? One of the strongest forces is social norms. And social norms quite simply mean how are people, how do we perceive that people around us are acting. Susan Fisk's colleague at Princeton University, Betsy Palak, studies this, and she looks at how norms affect stereotypes and action on stereotypes. She initially actually started this work in Rwanda with the Hutus and the Tutsis after the Rwandan genocide, and she wanted to see, you know, is this just a society where 
people hated one another or what exactly happened. And what she found was that actually everything was just fine until it wasn't. There was intermarriage. There weren't really many hard feelings. People did not act in a particularly biased way. And then all of a sudden, you had a leader who was spewing hate speech. You had media that was propagating that same message. And the people went crazy. They started killing each other. And you had one of the worst genocides in modern history. So even though Palak did this initial work in Rwanda, it is incredibly applicable to the United States. So let's go back to what's happening in the United States right now. Palak points to phenomena like the Brooklyn playgrounds that all of a sudden have swastikas being drawn on them, and the swastikas aren't even drawn in the right way. And when I first saw that, I said, who doesn't, you know, as a Jew, I thought, who doesn't know how to draw a swastika? But Apparently, people don't, but now they're practicing. And believe me, you know, in six months, they'll know how to draw it properly, which is actually what Palak's work shows that norms have a way of self reinforcing. It doesn't mean that we were a country of, you know, closeted, biased people who are anti Semitic, anti Muslim, anti Mexican. That's not what it means, but it means that now that these behaviors are becoming legitimate, that we might actually end up becoming more anti-Semitic, more anti-Black, more anti-Muslim than we were before, um, just because we see people acting in these ways and we're practicing and we're figuring out, oh, this is something that's totally acceptable for me to do. That's actually a pretty scary thing, especially when you look at research that shows that norms can change very quickly with one exception, When you are young, when you're at this critical period of seven, eight years old, and you are exposed to a lot of norms in one direction, those often end up coloring the way that your life develops. So for instance, kids who grew up during the Great Depression, um, they often still have attitudes of, I need to finish everything on my plate. I'm going to be frugal. I grew up during the Great Depression. People who grew up in the 60s, um, they have a similar attitude to the freewheeling 60s because that was the norm of their childhood. And so it's way too early to know how President Trump norms are going to play out over the long term. And so I I don't want to make any sorts of predictions. But you can kind of speculate that if people grow up thinking, oh, this sort of behavior is okay, this is what other people do, then they might end up doing it more frequently. When it comes to norms, the news isn't all bad. So norms can change quickly, but they don't have to change in a negative direction. Norms can change just as quickly in a positive direction. So take the example of cigarette smoking. That was a norm that changed very quickly in a good way to make our society healthier. So last year, Kevin Munger at NYU did a study on Twitter hate speech. And he created a bunch of Twitter bots who were either white or black men and had either a lot of Twitter followers or few. And he sent them out to police hate speech. And basically, he had them tell people, hey, this isn't okay. You really shouldn't be saying this. And what he found was that if the Twitter bot was actually a high status member of your in-group, then you listen to him. So white males who had lots of Twitter followers, got people to tone down the hate speech. So people who were really active on Twitter and being these little Twitter trolls, all of a sudden they felt a little bit chastised. 
because someone from their own in-group, someone who was kind of their like-minded person said, hey, this isn't the right norm. This is not right. Can you get thought leaders, in-group members throughout the country in different regions to actually say, hey, this isn't normal and we should not start thinking of this as normal, no matter what the president is saying. And if we can do that, then you can actually have a current of resistance. That was what was missing in places like Rwanda. There were no regional radio stations. There was no regional media. There were no regional leaders who said this is not okay. It was a very homogenized message. And that's what we really have to avoid. As we try to counteract this wave of so-called anti-political correctness, which is really legitimized hate speech. Just keep telling ourselves over and over and make sure that we're not saying this in a bubble, but that the right people all over the country are saying this, that this is not the norm and that this is not in any way, shape or form normal behavior. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson produced The Gist, though she's considering subcontracting her job out to Maria of Romania. Which one? There were several. Chris Berube produces The Gist. He's considering begging off, and in his stead, Maria Conchita Alonso, star of Running Man, Predator 2, and several non-Schwarzenegger vehicles. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but we'd be better served if that job were filled by Maria Sharapova, when not on drug suspension. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network, still getting over his dashed life dream to assemble a podcast featuring Antonin Scalia, Tom Hulse's character in Animal House, and Jesus's mom. Nino, Pinto, and Santa Maria. Could have been huge. The gist, say it loud and there is music playing. Say it soft, it's almost like praying. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.